Good evening and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is January 12th, 2023. I want to thank you all for coming. Of course, our class is the same as it was on Tuesday, film viewing of Broken Rainbow from 1985, and this is presented by the Indigenous Peoples Commission of the PCUSA. Just a few things, everyone. This is a movie. It has no uh, Marxist or communist connections, so the views expressed, even though we tried our best to, um, to edit this, however, the views expressed in this movie are trying to give a materialist, but also a, um, a chauvinist basis on why these things are happening. So please, um, when you're watching this, please remember to watch this through a Marxist and Leninist view of life that we have here. And so when you hear things such as um, white man's greed or white man this or Washington or Washington's government, just remember that the, um, the ruling class does use the, the, the U.S. government as its own apparatus for uh, controlling many um, things happening on a domestic and international front. So please keep that in mind. The focus of this documentary it showcases the events that took place during the 1980s when the U.S. federal government implemented a controversial policy on the relocation of over 10,000 Navajo inhabitants from their homeland. The material factors involved surrounding the involuntary relocation highlights the founding and the establishment of federal governments for the intent of facilitating the expropriation of mineral wealth by large corporations from indigenous lands. And even though we do have a lot of uh, tribal governments that are that seem well-doing, they, they still very much follow the same democratic or Republican line of the continuation of the expropriation of this wealth. So the use of the U.S. state apparatus wielded by monopoly capital in creating tensions between neighboring tribes to gain access to previously unavailable mineral wealth. That happened during that time. There was a contention that was facilitated that it was the Hopi versus the Navajo, or um, in other cases like um, this tribe versus that tribe. You see it happening continuously over, over the past um, several hundred years to um, different places in uh, South America, Central America, and uh, Canada. So everything that's been happening is kind of plays, it rhymes continuously. If you look at certain issues today, like the San Carlos Apache Oak Flats, they all produce, they all, the, the government via the monopoly capitalist class, they all do the same thing over and over and over again, just in different, they, they use the same tactics and strategies over and over again. And you just have to understand that who the real driver is behind all of this um, expropriation, who the real driver is. It's not the government, it's it's not this, it's it's all of these entities from Peabody Coal, from all of these natural companies, these natural mineral extractors and all of those companies. Uh, so what we'll be watching today, just a brief overview, is the, the years of the 1980s, ending in the 1990. Uh, over 10,000 Navajos were forcefully relocated from the area known as Big Mountain in Northeast Arizona. In the 1980s, Peabody Coal Corporation successfully campaigned to open an additional coal mine near the Big Mountain area. It represented the largest coal deposit in the U.S. at the time. The coal deposit in the area was estimated to be over $1 trillion or $2.7 trillion when it's adjusted for inflation. However, the rise of natural gas production during the uh, shale revolution in 2005 to 2010 
has since reduced the, the demand for coal dramatically for the past 10 years, and um, which resulted in the last Peabody coal mine closing in 2019. This uh, first part, there's two parts broken down, so you'd be watching the first part, is the, is, the re, is the reasons for the relocation and its effects. Okay, so in this, what you'll be watching briefly right here is just basically a real man's experience of the sudden transition to life under the capitalist mode of production. There are material interests as to the cause of the federal relocation policy for over 10,000 Navajo. As mentioned before, currently there are many examples across the U.S., across Canada, Central uh, America, and South America of people's fights against mineral uh, expropriation. And so I mentioned before the Oak Flats for the San Carlos Apaches. And uh, one of the more famous resistance is the Standing Rock uh, resistance. So they were able to successfully stop the Keystone Pipeline from being built in their unceded land. If you can see from the right-hand side of the slide, we can kind of get the geographical location from these from the movie. So when they're talking about Arizona and Navajo Nation, you can kind of see where the Navajo Nation lies. Um, the Cayenta mine was the first mine built. Um, the Black Mesa mine was the second mine built. And you can kind of see that Black Mesa just it's it's just a geographical location. And you can kind of see where it kind of expands throughout the Opian Navajo reservation. Over on the bottom, kind of see where different parts of the the coal went to inside and outside the Navajo Reservation. So you can kind of see um, a Navajo generating station got some of that mine. And it was the largest coal power plant in the Western uh, United States. So that's, um, and then you got Choya Power Plant that also got a lot of that coal and a lot of other coal. All of this coal actually did power a lot of Southern California, um, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and parts of Texas. Basically, also in this first part, you also get a brief history on the people and the culture of the Navajo and the Hopi. And you'll get to see interviews of the Big Mountain inhabitants and their way of life and also with the Hopi also. Also in this first part, you'll go through the history of the, the Navajo and the Hopis and generally each and every nation has their separate histories of their involvement and their association with the United States. And so one of our personal types of um, opinions is that up until the time of World War II and the fight against fascism, pretty much indigenous peoples were basically, it was the United States flag against the indigenous. And that's how it was kind of presented. And then now once the great, <laughs> the, uh, the fascist fight, we considered it a, a patriotic duty to go to munitions factories and um, work and do uranium mining for the atomic bomb, it was considered patriotic for us. It was considered a little patriotic to, uh, to, to fight against the fascists during the United States Army, the Navy, and uh, most notably, you'll know the code talkers. There are multiple code talkers for tribes. There are at least 26 tribes of code talkers, but you know, Navajo Nation gets, the, uh, gets a lot of the uh, attention, but basically there were 26 tribes represented. And here on the left side, here you see the uh, Iwo Jima flag being raised. A Pima soldier, a Pima Marine, was actually instrumental in helping the raising of the flag and the liberation of that army, that um, island. And you kind of see on the other side where people are kind of protesting the actions of, you know, 
fences building being built, trying to separate them. You kind of see where an elder is actually um, holding an American flag and it's you know upside down representing a we're in distress. That's just that's just how times have changed and um, we're more, we're more integrated into uh, society as workers, as um, as people unhoused, as living on working and studying on and off reservations, how people are integrated into the military also. That's not to say that it is, we're homogenous. I'm just giving a brief statement. Um, there are definitely more groups that are definitely more separated in American society, such as um, the Hawaiians. The Hawaiians, uh, the Hawaiians and their fight to liberate themselves are actually um, one of the more notable instances of where there's a greater separation of uh, American society and yeah. So I just want to give that brief background. And so we can start the movie now, comrade, please. Japan is the center of life to native people. Most of our land has been taken and few of our people remain. In 1974, Congress passed a law ordering 10,000 Navajo off their land. Land, the government says, belongs to the Hopi tribe. Congress has ordered the Navajo to move by 1986, despite the protests of the traditional Hopi and Navajo people. Chairman, I'm here today to discuss the tragedy of relocating over 9,000 of my tribal people from their native homeland. More than 75% of the Navajo relocatees will be condemned to a life of misery, poverty, and alienation. Just how would you have any income if you're forced to, to move? Uh, do you have any other way of making a living other than livestock raising? I make my living with the sheep. You don't have to carry them on your back, you just herd them. This is how I live. I will not relocate. If I were offered a new home, I would be a stranger in such a place. I wouldn't know how to operate the heating or the lighting system. And the expense, I'm sure, would be tremendous. How would I pay for these utilities? I have no income and have never been to any school. Assuming we go through with this destructive effort, how and where would she be relocated on the Navajo reservation? Senator DeConcini, there is no place on the Na present Navajo reservation to which she can relocate to carry on the way of life that she has described. The United States government created reservations for the Navajo and Hopi tribes more than a century ago. Navajo lived near the Hopi villages long before the reservation line was drawn and the government allowed them to stay until now. 
Today, the government is spending one-half billion dollars to partition the Hopi reservation between the two tribes and to move the Navajo out of the Hopi half. Most of the Navajo are being moved into border towns hundreds of miles from their homeland. Before moving, I was living very well. The sheep and the cows were like a bank. It was good when I relied on them. Now I fall into hunger. My shoes are all worn out, and that is the truth. Here I'm told to pay for everything, even the water. I owe taxes, too. I just suffer from all the bills. 11, 19 is your change. 10, 11, and 19 cents. Thank you. Have a nice day now. When Hastin learned that his Hogan had been deliberately burned down, he suffered a stroke. While he was in the hospital, his tracked house was repossessed for non-payment of taxes and utility bills. There is no word for relocation in the Navajo language. To relocate is to disappear and never be seen again. culture is fading, it's under all sorts of pressures, uh, which is attempting to adapt gradually, which is making all sorts of compromises subject to all sorts of stress, um, that now through this act of Congress is being, it's being terminated, it's being invalidated, it's being forced to get off its center, the land, that's, that's the integrating principle of the culture, and I say why? Enormous quantities of minerals are buried here. 
On the Navajo reservation alone lie 100 million barrels of oil, 25 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, 80 billion pounds of uranium, and 50 billion tons of coal, by conservative estimates. The energy corporations want the resources under Indian land, and if necessary, the native people will be sacrificed. We're going to stop there for our first round of questions and comments. Thank you. Real quick, more of a comment as always, but remember everyone who wasn't here on Tuesday, just moving up people unwillingly is one of four forms of genocide. You don't need to kill anybody. That's it. Thank you. I think uh, in North America, uh, this is a final stage of a state monopoly capitalism. And during state monopoly capitalism, uh, it's a handful of uh, corporations dominate agriculture, industry, and financial capital. And uh, the two-party system becomes just uh, a functionary, I mean, just uh, a, an instrument of uh, translating their policies into action. So I think this is a final phase for state monopoly capitalism in the United States, and uh, Lenin indicated that. This is the eat of the socialist revolution and nothing else. So it is uh, what we are doing. Uh, Mark, the, in a nutshell, the, the final advertising to emancipate North America from the super exploitation of a handful of corporations and their politicians. I know that there's also another type of um, resource extraction, actually. So it's, it's, it's in Nevada. and. Um, What's, what's actually located in Nevada is uh, lithium. And so a group of indigenous, several tribes are actually trying to fight the uh, lithium mining in there. And um, if we all know <laughs> the, the famous Twitter quote from Elon Musk is we coup who we want and all of that. Um, I just want to remind everyone that later on you'll see this, but a lot of our tribes were actually, our tribal governments were created to basically facilitate, legally facilitate the the expropriation of all this uh, resource wealth. And today, and it's been growing more and more since like World War II, I said before, it's been growing more and more that the contradiction is labor and capital because who is mining these areas? It's, it's indigenous peoples that are mining these areas. And we're in the Peabody Coal, we were the ones that were mining our, the, the coal up Black Mesa in Cayenta, um, the Laguna Pueblo and uh, other indigenous workers in the area were also mining their uranium that was located there in facilities that, are, that were happening. And the copper mines, and we're the ones that are going in there and actually doing the labor there. So we have to remember that, that just there's the, still the underlying contradiction of labor and capital. And that's all. Um, I just wanted to call attention to the fact that the bourgeoisie will never just say 
I want to take your resources. They always find whatever reason they think they can sell to the most people. And so in this case, they were saying, oh, they're living on Hopi land. Now, regardless of the fact that that wasn't actually true, they carved up the land and then decided that they couldn't live there. They made a reason that sounded like they could sell it to as many people as possible. They didn't just say, we're going to steal their resources. And you can see this in everything that the bourgeoisie do. We're not invading Afghanistan for their natural resources. We're doing it because they oppress their women and kill citizens and oppress protesters. It's something that is seen in every single time that the bourgeoisie engages in the more vicious forms of exploitation and expropriation of wealth from the working class and, and oppressed nationality. Um, and so we always have to be able to see through these lies. We have to train ourselves to recognize the propaganda from the capitalists for what it is and dig deeper. Follow the money, essentially. Follow the wealth. Follow what the capitalists gain from these lies. Uh, thank you. I think uh, that it is uh, also interesting to know. Like the state of development of the reservation, they were talking about not having any form of primary or, or, or secondary education. We can go ahead and jump back to the film for a sec. Since before human memory, winds and waters have sculpted this sacred Indian land and shaped the landscape like no other on earth. For 150,000 moons, Indian prayers have bonded the land and sky. This was home, first for the Anasazi, stargazers and architects of antiquity. The Anasazi designed the blueprint for civilization in North America. Their descendants, the Hopi, are the oldest culture surviving today. The word Hopi means peace, and the Hopi have been a people of peace for thousands of years. The Hopis are a Pueblo people who live in villages atop the mesas that lie within the center of this disputed area. For centuries, they remained close to the mesas. They farm plots in outlying areas, never going very far from the mesas because they always needed to be able to return to the villages to participate in the ceremonial life of the tribe. The Hopi have always lived with religion as the heart of their culture, the axis around which all life turns. have synchronized their energies to the rhythms of the universe. Their rituals are as highly developed as the most intricate mathematical equations. Seeing the world through Hopi eyes is seeing the world in balance. 
thousand years ago, the Navajo, or Dene, as they call themselves, migrated into the Southwest. According to their mythology, the Navajo came into existence through a circular opening called the Emergence Place. They settled within the four sacred mountains with the Hopi at the center. They, along with the Hopi, believed they were placed here to be caretakers of Mother Earth and to protect the sacred center of the continent. When the Navajo first came into the Southwest, they were hunters and gatherers moving with the seasons, living in simple shelters in small family groups. The Navajo Nation was a loose association of families and clans. They became shepherds. The Navajo believe that the sheep are gifts from the holy people. When it's cold and dark with snow, you wrap yourself up. And instead of forgetting the sheep, you stand by them with your teeth chattering. Long ago it was said, if your fingernails are frostbitten and your toenails are fallen off from herding sheep, only then do your sheep belong to you. With the wool from the sheep, the Navajo developed the art of weaving. Their rugs became their primary source of income in the modern world. The Navajo learned how to farm the desert from the Hopi, and corn became an important part of their lives. With farming, the people became rooted. They built permanent shelters called hogans, which opened to the east to greet the sun. I was born where there were no enclosures, and everyone drew a free breath. Big Mountain is a shrine to the Navajo who built their homes around its base. The people here are all related by blood, clan, or marriage. For generations, they have passed the land down from mother to daughter. Until now, half the Big Mountain people have been ordered to relocate. I'm a woman from Big Mountain. In our minds, we love this mountain very much. From the beginning, it was put here for us. I have children. I have a husband. I have the continuing generations of my family. This land must not be stolen from the coming generations. 
what my older people say is right and a way for us to have our culture keep on going and not to forget what our ancestors have brought to us. These ways were put here with us. We shake the pollen from the corn plant and offer it to the sun. The Holy Spirit protects us. We pray for ourselves in this way. The Navajo elders know the properties of plants and herbs, how to prepare them for different purposes. They know how to use crystals and prayers for healing, how to use planets and stars in planting. This is the heritage they pass down to their children in the sacred circle of life. The juice from these berries will cure your eyes if they're irritated. These berries are also used to make dyes. The dyes that belong to the white man color the wool right away. But with this, you have to let it sit for a long time before it will do that. We're going to stop for another round of questions and comments. Um, seeing Pueblo National Park, it reminds me of another thing where conservation seems to be taken as a look at what we are preserving as it was instead of let's actually enjoy the natural life as it is instead of some rare artifact that was found by white people and now no one can go back to it even if it was older land that used to belong to someone else. Yeah, I uh, I got mixed up because like at first they were talking about uh, the Hopi that they mean, and then they start talking about the Navajo. It got mixed up about which parts we're talking about, which tribe does like they uh, Navajo and the are the one with the religion at the center of their life, and they have sophisticated rituals and everything. I was trying to take notes on that. Right, that's the Hopi, and then after that, it became the uh, the Navajo. Yeah, I understand it's an issue with the movie, but it, it does bring about like great history yeah. and yeah and like uh, the hopi are the one with uh, religion at the center of their life and they have uh, rituals okay thanks yeah. Yeah, so let me understand something because i like to break it down simply back in the 1600s or whatever right the white uh, settlers came moved the first nations i know there's a different tribe but moved them basically once to land they didn't think mattered and then once that land they didn't think mattered had full they wanted to move them again so this is the second Forced relocation, thank you. Yeah, okay, so quickly, um, back in the 1600s and um, up to, I think it happened in like 17, like in the, in the age of Andrew Jackson, I believe that was when the famous uh, Trail of um, Broken Tears, I think it was called. That's the most infamous one. And so that's when uh, Cherokee and, um, and some other groups, they walked several thousand miles into this into what's known as the state of Oklahoma today 
And so that was the first one. And there was there all those very second ones, ones where some were pushed out, like the Chief Joseph Band. They were they tried to make their way to Canada, but they 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 weren't able to. And now a lot of other tribes also. Some tribes like the O the Ogala, Lakota, and Dakota, I believe that they kept a lot of their, although smaller, but they also inhabited like us, the, a lot of the same areas as before, because I know they have a lot of Black Hills sentiment there too. I know it's just, but for us, the Navajo, the, our main one was uh, in the years of 1864 to 1868, because before that, our main, especially in the West, our main interaction with, uh, with, with white people, basically, it was the Navajos and the Western tribes versus the, the Spaniards and their whole colonial conquest there. And then so that was that. And then the, uh, the Americans came to the West. And that, that's when the, that's the second time um, there was a there was struggle. And and that's when you had the 1864 to 1868 removal and relocation. Removal was what it was. It a long, and then you had the internment camp. And then they we came back after we signed the treaty. And then this particular time in the 1990s and 19, late 80s um, was the actual first time in recent history that about several thousand people have been relocated again, uh, again, forcefully relocated since those treaty times. And so, and that's why that's what makes this uh, significant is because it was it happened most recently. So I have a comment and a question. Uh, my comment is just kind of to build off of what Comrade said about uh, forced relocation being a form of genocide. The Nazi idea of Lebensraum was heavily based on Manifest Destiny and Andrew Jackson's aforementioned policies towards indigenous nations. Uh, so it, we really cannot understate the genocidal policies that, you, that the American bourgeoisie have taken towards indigenous nations as it served as a sort of a blueprint for many future fascist movements and ideologies. Uh, my question is, and please feel free to not answer this if it's answered later on in the movie, to what extent were the hope was the Hopi tribe involved in protesting this fourth relocation? Uh, earlier on, it uh, shows a little bit of the Navajo response. I was just curious if the Hopi people were also involved in protesting this. Thank you. From my understanding in... Um... My, my own research was that uh, there that there was a lot of both tribes basically were at the point of contention on the line. They were basically trying to um, protest at the same time. They were actually doing their to were at the Capitol protesting also. And um, since AIM was heavily involved in this entire uh, toward later years, actually was actually involved with them. And then so we had um, interoperable protests basically. And that's how that all happened. Um, as for, I know that my mom, has um answered all stories as she could tell i don't know if you want to answer this help answer this question too sure i can um hi everybody i grew up in this whole era there and i remember the hopis were right along marching with us in various areas of the protests and it showed in the movie that um the Hopis were there with us at the hearing. Uh, we had a hearing with the Senates, and that's when that's what the documentary shows. But um, the Hopis were there, the leaders of the Hopis, claiming that they we are at peace. We're not we're not going to be at war. We're at peace 
We like to remain peaceful and the Hopis were also affected also because of the relocation because there were a few of them that were uh, also uh, had to be removed by relocation too. So all along they were on it to remain peaceful and that was one of the times that they were there and how they got, how the Navajos and Hopis got to... um, to Washington DC was they had a they called it second long walk. The first long walk will be discussed probably later on by the movie, but that was considered a second long walk and uh they had a they have a whole book if you you are interested in that too. So all the grandmas you see and all the hopies you see are uh, there protesting that uh we did not want to have any forced relocation. So but that's my two cents. Uh, what was the title of that book? Oh, it's called The Second Long Walk. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. And also, thank you for, for being here and, and giving us this information. I do believe, too, that this uh, film uh, makes mention of how uh, these relocations and, and this treatment towards Indigenous Americans inspired the Nazis. So the good thing is it does actually make mention of that. So we'll go ahead and get back to the film. All our soul. I really wish that Navajo leaders and Navajo people generally would take a look at this and say we don't like it. Uh, It's rotten. uh, It's unfair. We wish they had done it some other way. But we're Americans like everyone else, and we can uh, change if we have to. And we'll find some more land that our kids will think is just as good as this land and get on with it. I don't know who these white people are. Now here they come from someplace across the water. And now they're telling everyone what to do. Indians have been paying with their lives for the white man's greed since the arrival of Columbus. White settlers moving west considered the land theirs for the taking. They demanded the Indians be killed or confined. An officer in the United States Cavalry wrote, By the colonization and subjugation of the Navajo tribe, we gain for civilization their whole country. There is evidence of gold fields, of veins of silver, and the richest copper. kill Indians, and I believe it is right and honorable to use any means under God's heaven. Colonel Kit Carson burned Navajo crops, slaughtered Navajo livestock, and murdered innocent people. The 8,000 Navajo that survived were herded across the New Mexican desert in winter. Hundreds perished along the way, the old, the young, the helpless. Those that couldn't walk any further were left to die in the snow. The survivors called this the long walk. They called their destination the place of suffering. Eighty years later, the Nazis would study these internment camps for Indians to design their concentration camps for Jews. No shelter was provided. They dug holes in the ground and covered themselves with branches. They were given coffee and flour. 
They boiled the unfamiliar coffee beans, threw out the coffee, and ate the beans. They died of dysentery, hunger, and despair. They begged to be allowed to go home. The Navajos' captivity ended when the taxpayers protested. It cost a million dollars a year to keep them captive. In 1868, Congress signed a treaty with the chiefs of the tribe. The Navajo were restricted to a reservation. They promised to send their children to government schools and to give up fighting forever. In exchange, they were released and given two sheep each. Somehow they survived. Their few sheep became large herds. The women developed the art of weaving rugs for trade with the whites. The men developed their silver-making skills to craft fine jewelry. They kept their word and gave up the life of the warrior. As their population grew and their herds expanded, the Navajo spread out across the land. No one explained to the Navajo exactly where their reservation was, and there were no boundary markers on this desert land. The concept of being restricted was as alien to the Navajo as partitioning the air or owning a star. Some Navajo returned to the land they had occupied before captivity, near the Hopi villages of Black Mesa. The Hopi accepted the return of their Navajo neighbors as long as they didn't take land the Hopi themselves were using. This area, the Four Corners area, is set aside as a refuge for all uh, native people and other people who want to live in peace. The peace the Hopi wanted was not to be. The United States military occupied Hopi land. They sent bureaucrats and allowed missionaries to control the peaceful Hopis. The BIA agent, the Bureau of Indian Affairs official, was in fact the law on the, the scene. And uh, they set the rules as to what Indians did or didn't do and what their religions, religious practices were or weren't and so forth. The, the idea was to take the culture and rip it out of the Hopi people. And hundreds of miles away, the children would be trucked to uh, boarding schools where they would stay for great periods of time, have their hair cut, their names changed, forbidden to speak Hopi, forced to speak English, forced to attend Christian services, denied the right to practice their Hopi religions, etc. As I grew up, I began to take notice that um, there were um, white people among us, you know, a few of them among us, and, and the uh, people our parents used to say to to run when you see a bahana coming, you know, they'll grab you and take you to school. They had to hire the army to come and get us and take us to Kings Canyon, which is a boarding school. And we stayed there for many years without ever coming home, and then we were older. And we sort of grew away from our people, you know. When the Hopis resisted this passively, they were summarily treated as criminals. There are documents in the archives which will show you photographs of whole groups of Hopi leaders hauled off to Alcatraz on the uh, conviction of the local BIA agent. 
to consolidate federal control over the Hopi, the government agent drew an arbitrary rectangle on a map, depriving the Hopi of millions of acres they had considered their own. With the stroke of a pen, the Hopi, like the Navajo, became wards of the federal government. You know, that's the historical legal framework that led to this present dispute. The idea that the federal government can give and take Indian land willy-nilly as it sees fit, with no legal restraint whatsoever. Those lands weren't the lands of the United States uh, uh, with which to do as they pleased. Those were native people's lands. And I think the problems that we're now seeing would not have arisen had it not been for the conduct of the United States in those times. There were 500 Navajo living inside the Hopi reservation when it was formed. The government not only allowed them to stay, but also encouraged more and more Navajo to move into the Hopi reservation. As far as I can remember, uh, the Navajos have uh, come into our area and uh, they've brought in wood and they bring mutton and uh, we uh, trade with them and we, we trade our corn and beans, melons, things like that. And uh, so we are dependent on each other for our livelihood. In 1884, the Indian agent wrote, The best of good feelings generally exists between these two tribes. They constantly mingle at festivals, dances, and feasts. It was these dances that first drew white curiosity seekers to Hopi land. In August of each year, when the earth was dry and cracked, the Hopi priest prayed for rain with rattlesnakes in their teeth. If the Hopi had been living in a humble way, the rains would come. The Hopi tried to teach the white Americans to respect the power of their ways. But their ceremonies, which echoed the archaic womb of human consciousness, resonated from a depth that few whites could comprehend. While the Hopi prayed for and with nature, the whites were hell-bent on conquering her. The completion of the Santa Fe Railroad accelerated the white man's penetration into Indian territory. The trains brought with them alcohol and diseases to which the Indians had no resistance. Small towns sprung up. Homesteaders and prospectors began settling on Indian lands. The influx of white settlers caused conflicts with the Navajo, whose own population had expanded rapidly. To protect the settlers and the Navajo from one another, the government was forced to expand the Navajo reservation until it completely surrounded the Hopi reservation. Having confined the Indians to land he thought worthless, the white man discovered that beneath the tangle of corn plant roots lay vast quantities of oil. The 
mining companies pressured the Department of the Interior to set up tribal councils on the reservations, which could then sign leases on behalf of the tribes. The first Navajo tribal council was hand-picked by the Secretary of the Interior and was forbidden to meet except in his presence. The tribal council was established in the 1920s to sign contracts on behalf of the Navajo people for energy development, for oil development at that time. And ever since, the attitude of political leaders in Phoenix and in the rest of Arizona has been that the purpose of tribal government is to go along with whatever programs are proposed. It was not set up to serve the Navajo people. It was so that there would be a formal way, an official way of having endorsements for development of Navajo land. The Navajo tribal government to this day operates as a corporation. It does not have the welfare of people as the purpose for which it exists. To solidify control over both tribes, the BIA set up a Hopi tribal council. The Hopi already had a system of government through which they had lived in peace for thousands of years. The traditional leaders protested. We do not accept or recognize the tribal council and we will never work with them because our work as Hopi traditional and religious leaders, we go through our ceremonies and other religious activity and we sincerely believe that we are taking care of all living things on this earth, all people. This is our work. So we cannot follow that other system and create trouble for any person. The uh, vote by which the Constitution was supposedly adopted was uh, a vote by only a tiny minority of the Hopi people. It was conducted in an atmosphere characterized by all kinds of fraud and deception and trickery on the part of the Interior Department and those who supported them. Oliver Lafarge, who conducted the election for the government, later confessed to the injustice he himself had perpetrated on the Hopi people. The Hopis have been operated on by everybody from Coronado to Kit Carson to Oliver Lafarge. In almost every case, they've suffered for it. Why they should ever trust another white man is a mystery to me. Oil leasing underway, the BIA began seizing Hopi and Navajo livestock. To discourage overgrazing, the government killed or confiscated more than half a million Navajo livestock. Many animals were shot and left to die near the people who had cared for them. Washington says, whatever my wish, it is to be obeyed. That's the only thing that Washington stands for. But his plans are no good, and so today we will starve. The grass became worse after stock reduction, and because of new government grazing restrictions, the people were not allowed to move around in search of better grass. Each family settled in one place and tried to hang on to as much land as possible. They were becoming more like white people, each one saying, this is my land, go away. Many Navajo were forced to leave the land. To support their families, some men found work with the mining companies who were staking their claim to the mineral wealth of the Southwest. 
World War II changed the lives of the Navajo forever. Some Navajo went to work in munitions factories. Others mined the uranium that was used to make the atomic bomb. Neither the government nor the mining companies warned them of the dangers of radiation. Thousands of Navajo went to war. Many distinguished themselves. An elite corps of Navajo, the Code Talkers, used their ancient language to create a code that was never broken by the Japanese. The Navajo word for potato became the code word for grenade. Egg meant bomb. They transmitted thousands of messages without error, making a major contribution to the Allied victory in the Pacific. When the war ended, the government continued to subsidize the defense industry in the West. As cities like Los Angeles, Phoenix, and Salt Lake were undergoing population explosions, their energy needs became excessive. The utility companies needed a new source of electric power. They began developing coal-fired power plants in the Four Corners region of the West. The idea there was to import energy from this remote area and to export the pollution and the health and environmental consequences of building these kinds of power plants. And this was the beginning of a very intense pressure that grew during the 1960s and 1970s on the resources on, on Indian lands. One third of the nation's strippable coal and half of its uranium is on Indian land. Much of this mineral wealth lies beneath the Hopi and Navajo reservations. Wanting to gain access to these resources, a Mormon lawyer named John Boyden tried to convince the Hopi to hire him as their attorney. Most Hopi refused to even meet with Boyden, knowing he wanted to strip mine their land. Boyden then held fraudulent elections in the Hopi villages. He persuaded the BIA to appoint him attorney to the Hopi Tribal Council. The traditional Hopi lost control over their land and life. By 1964, the first major mineral uh, contracts were signed with Peabody Coal. Uh, some $3 million uh, was given to the Hopi Tribal Council, of which their attorney, John Boyden, uh, received $1 million. So you can see that it was a rather lucrative client to have. The Boyden firm listed as its clients both the Hopi Tribal Council and Peabody Coal Company. Peabody Coal is the nation's largest coal producer. It is owned by six multinational corporations. Peabody signed leases with both the Hopi and the Navajo Tribal Councils and began stripping 12 million tons a year from the Arizona Plateau called Black Mesa. Black Mesa is a holy shrine to both Hopi and Navajo. Stripping her of her coal is as sacrilegious as bulldozing St. Peter's Basilica for its marble. All right, and we're going to stop there for another round of questions and comments. Yeah, I, I don't know. I seem to be quite talkative tonight. Um, basically, just absolutely disgusting. Uh, I could feel my heart. Just, that's it. Just disgusting. Thank you. Yeah, I was here last or on Tuesday as well, and I really enjoy this class. And uh, related to, to modern events, I guess for better or for worse, one of the interesting things of the, um, the special military operation in Ukraine by Russia is a, a lot of the soldiers there that are fighting uh, yeah, there are some Russians, but 
mainly a lot of them are actually like um, they're Muslim from the Caucasus region. So basically Arabs. And then the other half are actually from Siberia. And they're basically the indigenous of Russia. And uh, Russia has pretty much shown propaganda videos, just like the Navajo code talkers. Um, they're using the, uh, the Tuvans, the throat singers. They use them because uh, obviously it's hard to understand the language. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing that they're marketing it in that way. Perhaps in this way, it actually looks kind of bad. But I thought that's interesting that today, um, special military operation, that's why the Ukrainians call them orcs, because they're all Central Asians and Islam uh, Muslims. I can give a response to that, too. Yeah, I think I think we can see it as a way of how the USSR brought together different uh, minorities and nationalities and ethnicities during their 80 years of, of, of socialism, basically. And I think that's just that's just the remnants of all of that. You know, that's the remnants of just the glue that they held together right now that's that's in the Russian Federation. So I think ultimately it's a progressive thing that's actually from the old times. And that's all. Thank you, comrade. Really quick before I go to these next hands, I wanted to repeat something that was said on Tuesday that basically uh, there seemed to be a shift in, you know, the relations between the indigenous community uh, and, you know, the rest of the United States, what gets deemed, you know, the, the white man in this in this film after World War II, because they had fought and died together in that war. Um, you had indigenous people uh, that went and not even just the code talkers, but people that, you know, fought, actually fought with guns and armor against the fascists in Germany. And so that, you know, that really, you know, changed the perspective for a lot of them. And so, you know, it's one of the things that we need to think of, too, is just how bad we've treated them, uh, despite the way that they fought for us before. You know, and even if they hadn't fought for us, what we've done to indigenous people has been insane. But, you know, it's just one thing that I want everybody here to kind of take in when they watch this. Uh, so, Comrade General Secretary Angelo, you have the floor. Yeah, there's a problem with the presentation. And it seems to be easy to do this, to blame in the struggle for women's equality. Who do you blame? The man. In the struggle against racism, who do you blame? The white. Same thing here. I think the enemy is not the man as opposed to the woman. It is not the race. It is the class. That's the thing that bothers me about this it constantly refers to the word white. The white worker who doesn't have anything has nothing to gain in oppressing an indigenous group of people and neither does in any other struggle. So it's the ruling class that's basically in charge here. They're the ones who can make the rules, not the white worker who doesn't have a pot to, uh, to you know what in. And so therefore, that has to be made clear in, uh, in, in this presentation. It really does, because it could easily fall into the idea of settlers. I could see this falling into the idea of settlers. Thank you. Yeah, I have a question. You know, Nixon in his campaign in 1968, he, one part of his campaign, it was important, is that he promoted what he called black capitalism. He wanted to create a capitalist black class because of what, what happened in uh, the year before in 67, 
the year of the riots, you know, the hot summer of 1967, when uh, black communities erupted all over the country, right? So next year, he wanted to create a black capitalism. And uh, Hampton at the time, he said, we don't want uh, no black capitalism, you just want socialism, right? So anyway, uh, my question was, well, and we know that uh, Nixon, he kind of succeeded over the years since, you know, we had Obama, we have Lloyd Austin, uh, Pentagon chief, which is black and all that. So we know there's a black capitalist class or imperialist class. Do you know if they ever tried that with the indigenous Americans? Uh, yeah, yeah. So there isn't much anything of black capital. I mean, sorry, indigenous capitalists, because there's no notable like anyone who actually can has a factory or anything like that. But there are notable individuals such as um, Secretary Deb Holland. She used to be a uh, the representative for New Mexico, too. And so she she's heralded as a Democrat who's indigenous and, you know, she she has she's supposed to be the, the great. She, yeah, she's supposed to be like integrated into a lot of society. Uh, however, she is like a millionaire. So she has quite a bit of wealth to her own name. And in matter of fact, the way that she actually does things is she doesn't really stand up to the Biden administration. And, and especially when it comes to like uh, resource extraction and all that. She, she's very quiet on those issues, but she, you know, but when it's something that, you know, she doesn't have a lot of stake in like Indian Child Welfare Act, she, she'll, she'll speak up against that. But she pretty much rides the line of the Democrats. That's a lot of what the um, indigenous politics do is they ride the lines of the Democrats. They ride, they ride the lines of the uh, ruling class. So that's all. And actually there is a recent push actually in the culture around the surrounding area to, um, to produce uh, the petty bourgeoisie, indigenous petty bourgeoisie. So you'll see like indigenous shops, you know, indigenous um, merchantilism. So you'll see a lot of that popping up in, uh, especially in the recent years, especially on social media and all of that. So there is like a push in that direction. So that's all I want to say. Um, I just wanted to say kind of regarding what Angelo had to say um, that uh, in the documentary, they mentioned that the taxpayers kind of protested against the uh, detainment of Na Native Americans because of the costs. And I, I kind of quickly heard that, but yeah. I think that the, uh, like the biggest tragedy about the whole uh, you have all of the implements that could be used to facilitate greater living for these people, but because of the relations of production uh, are, are used like a weapon against um, so I feel like there are two things that were mentioned in this documentary, as well as a couple of other related facts that really highlight the fact that the class struggle is really the fundamental contradiction that needs to be addressed. Uh, as mentioned, there was the uh, thing with uh, the taxpayers, uh, which had they were protesting the treatment of indigenous tribes uh, because it was also opposed to their interests. Um, there also is the formation of the indigenous councils, where if you look at the current composition of them, the recently elected Navajo president, Boo Negren, uh, if you look at his employment history, he was a COO in his most recent job, and he has worked in senior management at uh, Fortune 500 companies. Before that, uh, the previous cabinet of the Navajo Nation included people who were uh, trained by the FBI. Um, and uh, I believe that Boo Negren is married to an Arizona state representative. Uh, so although they may not be big bourgeoisie, uh, they are essentially 
incorporated into the ruling class in one way or another. And uh, through cooperation, through these national petty bourgeoisie, essentially, they're able to uh, facilitate further exploitation of indigenous nations. So it still comes down to a class contradiction exercised through national oppression. Uh, Thank you. So just a couple of things hinting actually in response to a lot of these inquiries. So Karl Marx wrote in, um, in Capital Volume 1, uh, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the expropriation, enslavement, and entombment in the minds of the Aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of Black people, signalizing the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. And, you know, keep going. And then it goes, if money comes into the world with a congenital blood stain on one cheek, capital comes dripping from head to foot from every pore in blood and dirt. And that's from Marx's capital. And we just have to remember that after the 1776 progressive revolution of the American Revolution, we have to remember that what came right afterwards was the primitive accumulation of capital. And so that's what you see heading into the West from manifest destiny to all this relocation is just the accumulation of that's from that era, the primitive accumulation of capital. And from here, you keep seeing monopoly capital continuing to be the driving force behind all of these atrocities. So that's all. All right. Uh, Thank you, comrades.